What is up? Welcome to Forefront 360, a podcast where we take you all around the intersection of the arts and the Christian faith. I'm your host, Cody Schweikert, and in studio today is a very, 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 very special guest to the show. Uh, He's a dear friend of mine, um, but more importantly, he is uh, a husband and a father of two little girls. He serves as the Adult Ministries Director at Browncroft Community Church in Rochester, New York. He holds a Master's of Arts focused in theology from the University of Valley Forge. And uh, Peter Englert is also a faithful fan of the New York Jets. He also happens to look like he could be Andrew Luck's little brother or little big brother, if you know what I mean. Uh, <laughs> Peter, thanks for, thanks for coming on the show, man. You know, I, uh, you know, I went from Corey Matthews from Boy Meets World mm-hmm. to uh, Andrew Luck. I think I'll take it. Good. <laughs> Good, man. Well, you know, this is a... This is a audio medium, so people can't really see you, but I wanted to give them just a picture um, in their minds. So, uh, which reminds me, I have to do the, the lightning round questions, Oh, but I didn't prepare any. I was so focused on this heavy topic we're doing, but every time we get a new guest on the show, we ask them lightning round questions that have nothing to do with anything arts or Christian related. You know what? I, growing up Pentecostal, I'm yeah. sure you can feel the spirits moving. I, well, here's the thing, and I don't mean to brag, I, I need to have a spirit of humility here, but I'm a radio professional, and I'm just <laughs> gonna, I'm gonna come up with some off the top of my head, okay? Oh, man. Are you ready for this? Wait, so we're gonna start with lightning around. Yeah, yeah, I'm just gonna hit you. All right. Don't, don't, no long extended answers, you just, the first thing that comes to mind, okay? What's your favorite candy? Reese's. Respect. I thought you were allergic to peanut butter. I'm not. What are you allergic to? Uh, shellfish. Are but you, though? I might not be allergic to that. Because so. I got a text from you a little while ago saying you accidentally ate a burrito with shrimp in it. Well, and I don't know if it's crab delight. There's, there's some suspicions. But anyways, Reese's by far. Anything peanut butter and chocolate is a good thing. Okay. Have you read Chronicles of Narnia? I have not. You have not, Peter? I am embarrassed to say. I have. have you seen Star Wars movies? Oh, yeah. Okay, do you have a favorite Star Wars movie? It's probably it's probably Rogue One is my favorite. I thought they did that really well, but there's it's highly contested and highly debated. And probably Return of the Jedi, that was the first one I saw because I'm a child of the 80s. Mm-hmm. So between those two, it's not the best movie. I understand that. Right. But we are millennials and we are nostalgic. That's right. That's right. Well said. What's your favorite place on the planet? Oh, man. Binghamton? Are you from Binghamton? I, I am. Well, technically, I'm from Endicott, which is the home of IBM. Um, you know, right now, I'd say Ocean City, New Jersey. I just enjoy the vacation uh, there. Um, we go with my wife's family. But, yeah, I I love Philadelphia. I love Rochester, too. So the one place I haven't been that I want to go to and maybe this just reveals how depressed I am, but like I want to go to Seattle. That's the only place oh, okay. I've been. So I thought you were going to say Russia. Russia. Uh, Seattle sounds. A little, no offense to our Russian listeners, and I'm sure there are many of you, but uh, Seattle's Peter the Great. Peter the Great. Peter. <laughs> Peter the Great. You're so vain, um, dude. Okay, here's a question. Uh, your last meal. You're you're gonna go to the gallows the next day, and they say, okay, what do you want? You can have anything in the world. Oh man, that's a tough one. Um, at first thing off the top of my head is a good steak, maybe um, filet mignon. Mm-hmm. How are you? How are you having it cooked? 
Oh, it's uh, it's rare. It's gonna rare, miss not it. medium rare, but rare. I mean, medium rare, but okay. rare to medium rare, somewhere in there. Wow, respect. You know, I I want it to kind of say moo to me at the end of the day, but <laughs> why is it that I respect people more the more rare they eat their steak? What does that say about me? You know, my wife's the mental health counselor. She but might you're be pastor. You're pastor. I mean, you 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 can read into that a little bit. What is it? I, I think it's the non fear thing. It's like I'm going to eat this the way it is, and <laughs> you know. But you're talking to the guy that like when I see like something's a day past its due, I'm right. like, we got to throw it away. I'm that way too. And my wife's like, no, you don't. And so anyway, so no, I'm terrified of that. I totally obey. It's like. The word of God is the authority in my life, but those little like printed dates they put on like milk cartons are just below that. Like I really respect those and revere that authority. Jesus, the Bible, the FDA. There you go. That's right. That's right, man. <laughs> call me a sheep. Call me a conspiracy theorist, whatever. I'm, I'm, I'm abiding by those. Um, okay. I need one more question. I want to ask you one more question. How about... Is this, I think it's all my questions are about food right now because I think I'm a little bit hungry but I'm going to go, I'm going to swerve and say, what was the name of your best friend growing up? Childhood friend. Zach Smith. So he's the best man at my wedding. Zach Smith. Um, Zach's awesome. Zach actually got his PhD in kinesiology and he's literally, literally a sports philosopher. Now, Peter, of course I'm extremely intelligent. I know exactly what kinesiology is, but for our other listeners, could you maybe explain what that is? I don't really know, but it's <laughs> exercise. Si- it's I think it's exercise. Okay. Well, it, like I mean, kinesthetics, like movement. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, I mean, again, I call him a sports philosopher, and uh, you know, maybe uh, Forefront can share that. Q idea. He wrote an article for Q ideas called "Fair Trade Sports," oh. and you know, is about the upcoming World Cup that's coming up, and uh, he just, you know. There's been some injustices to the workers, and that's it's still kind of happening. Um, and so it's just very fascinating. He thinks very deeply on this stuff, and I love it. Zach Smith. Shout out to our boy Zach Smith. I don't know you, but if you're a friend of Peter, you're a friend of mine. All right? There you go. Cool, dude. Um, well, thanks for doing that. Uh, sorry I didn't prepare you for that. You did well. Um, good job. Peter, we are, this is your first time on the Forefront 360 show. But this is not our first time sharing a microphone. I mean, we're old podcast buddies. We go way back because we, we tell our listeners quickly about um, your podcast that, that you do. Yeah. Why God Why is brought to you by Browncroft. And, um, you know, it's a church podcast, but it's also for anybody. But we respond to the questions that people don't feel comfortable asking in church. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I think for Cody, you know, we've talked about loneliness and grief and, you know, just realize that the Sunday morning in one hour, you can't cover everything that happens and even in small groups. So, you know, we get guests like yourself, like other individuals, and we just have the conversations that we anticipate that people have. And sometimes our listeners even give us questions and mm-hmm. we find guests and we just talk about it. Yeah, it's a great show. It's a quality program. Uh, well-run operation. I've been fortunate to I think I did. I do four, four episodes or is it three? I thought it was, th- it could be four. You, it, yeah. It was the grief one. Well, it was the I, most recent one. I didn't count your co-hosting. Oh, I counted okay. you as a guest. So okay. you've done more than three, right. but yeah, uh, I love the show. Um, it's, it's some, it's topical. It's got something like no matter who you are, or what your experience is, there's definitely an episode for you. Um, 
some of my favorite people um, that I know, wise, uh, godly people that are also real people with real life experiences have been on the show. So it's an excellent program. Check it out. Um, but we, we've already got chemistry here, man. I feel, I feel just a good vibe here. Um, it's sunny out, and we're going to dive into a question that I probably need another cup of coffee for, but um, I, guess, I guess we'll just get right into it. It's, it feels... I think I'm nervous because it feels like there you could write like 10 books about this topic because it's we're talking about the Bible and there's quite a bit of stuff in the Bible. <laughs> so uh, let's let's just let's just this episode will be kind of something between an interview and a discussion. Uh, Peter has expertise that I do not have. So I definitely want to um, ask good questions and listen. But essentially, we're going to explore this idea that the Bible is more than just information that communicates like objective facts about God. So we're going to try to grapple with the Bible as a literary work of art, right? Hence this discussion happening on this program of, you know, about the intersection of the arts and faith. And maybe this is, this is definitely the most, uh, the Bible is the most accomplished work of art that deals with faith, I I would argue. So um, it feels, it feels like a mammoth undertaking, but let's just see if we can scratch the surface here. Um, Peter, just, what makes you want to do this podcast and explore this topic? What excites you about it? I just think, so I meet a lot of people that are doubting the Bible, doubt Jesus, they're unchurched or they're de-churched. And um, I just think that the way we've treated the Bible isn't the way that the original authors and even the way God intended it. And so I just think that, when you can rediscover the Bible that would connect with you in a powerful way, and we're going to fumble over words and there might even be some of your listeners that, you know, are going to argue with some of the points. Mm -hmm. But, um, I think people forget that the Bible is full of different genres. Mm -hmm. Last I checked poetry narrative. Um, those are part of literature, right? You know, and I, I think it's 70% of the Bible is narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I, I don't think that we fully appreciate that. And rather than seeing people doubt and feel uncomfortable, I'd rather let's have the dynamic conversation. Mm. Mm. This is good. This is good. So let, let's go there. So uh, reading the Bible as a story versus a scientific, scientific method, what like how give me an example like when people are thinking about the bible too scientifically or too too much out of its realm what what are what are you noticing when people say that well i i like what you're saying about um story versus science um the way that i've seen it though too it's the art and science of biblical interpretation mm. so break that down well <clears throat> so like when you read a passage mm-hmm. you know i think for many of us and this goes back to the enlightenment You know, we started, and you can notice in history, we started reading the Bible scientifically. So let me just give you a quick example. So Nicholas Copernicus, very smart scientist, Mm -hmm. basically says, hey, I just want to let you know the sun is the center of the universe, not the earth. And all of these theologians were like freaking out Mm -hmm. because they're saying, you know, the Bible says the sun rises and the sun sets. Mm -hmm. Well, when I read Emily Dickinson... And she talks about snowfall. Mm-hmm. I don't make deductions about yeah. Emily Dickinson's yeah. snowfall for sight because it's an observation. And right. coming from Psalms, 
you know, they're, they're not writing from this hugely scientific perspective no. and they're basing their theology. So if someone would have sat there and said, you know what, let's understand the genre of what's being communicated in here, it could have saved a lot of time. Right. Mm, that's good. That's really good. And I, I think it is, can also be fuel for people that doubt or are very skeptical of, of Christianity. They read things like, you know, the, the corn, all the, the four corners of the earth, you know, the text like that. And like, see, this is just a silly text. This is ancient nonsense that had no idea of the scientific uh, kind of knowledge that we have today. And that's, I sounds like what you're saying is those kinds of interpretations are not too, you're not too smart for the Bible. You actually maybe are not reading it like, a, <laughs> like a, like a, a sophisticated reader, right. And understanding genre and the purpose of a, of a text. Well, I mean, even in saying that you read a memoir, which is true mm-hmm. differently than you read a David McCullough history book. Mm-hmm. It's not saying that one is more valid than the other. It's just different. Right. And it's the same thing with poetry yeah. and, and humans, tried to language is limited. And I think we forget that. Like when I describe the sun setting, that's from my perspective. That's true in my mm-hmm. perspective. Cause it does look like right. we're in Webster, New York, right? Beautiful where life's worth living. Life is worth living. But, <laughs> but that that's the whole point is from my perspective, it looks like the sun is setting, but in reality, in the science, right. it's, you know, the earth is moving around. And that doesn't mean you disagree with that yeah. fact, right? But yeah. like you, yeah, it, I actually, one day it was, it was in a season of right after I, in college, right after I got out of college, I dealt with doubt a lot, you know, does God exist? All these questions. And I remember reading somewhere, I think it was in Genesis about how the Bible said that the moon was a light, you know, the moon was a light in itself. That's kind of how it talked about it. And we know that the moon is not a light. It, the moon is bright at night because the sun is hitting it and it's reflecting the sun's light, right? So I was like, oh my gosh. And I, I had a friend there who was a little more mature than me, a little wiser than me. And I was like, Andrew, bro, I'm just thinking about this. And like, I just see this stuff, these contradictions in scripture all the time. And it's making me doubt my, you know, the authenticity of and the inerrancy of scripture and all this stuff. And he's like, he's like, dude, you know, if you're writing, you know, if you're writing a text that, that looks like a light to you and that is a light to you. And I think I think you're missing the point here of what the text is trying to do, and that was a huge comfort for me. So, well, let's go there. Okay. You you went there, yeah. So, like one of the most highly debated passages in the Bible is Genesis one, mm-hmm. one to two, the creation story. Right. And if you were to read that in Hebrew, it's not written like a scientific textbook. Right. It's written it's in poetry yeah. as a song, and. And you miss that. So we read this and we have all these debates about evolution, about, you know. How could this come before this? Seven literal days. Right. And, you know, and I've had to teach on this a couple times. That's not what the author of Genesis is worried about. Mm -hmm. Like, and I mean, even just if you go back, this is why literature is so important. In, In ancient times, Every religion had or culture had their own creation story. Mm -hmm. And usually it was two powerful beings Mm -hmm. fighting each other. And the one that wins gets earth. Mm -hmm. Well, if you notice and you read Genesis one, there's no fight. Mm -hmm. 
Like there's an assumption that God is there. And, and so if you're reading that as an ancient person, like that's superly shocking. Right. Yet here we are like, you know, no offense to Bill Nye, but like we're trying to have this conversation with Bill Nye and that's not what the Bible's doing. Right. Mm. Bill, if you're listening and we know that you are, we love you, man. We love your work. Thanks for your big part of my childhood. All right. uh, that was the best in science class and the teacher's like look I haven't prepared anything I'm going to be honest with you guys we're watching Bill so Springville's finest right Springville's there Springville's finest Bill 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 um, inertia is a property of matter uh, that's the only thing I remember but um, <laughs> I don't know what any of it means uh, Peter let's, let's get deep in the weeds here because this is again I'm kind of out of my element with this question but I want to know just some, some thoughts you have what does it mean that the Bible was written for us and not to us? What's the difference there? So, you know, let, let's go to let's go to literature for a second. Mm-hmm. So you, you asked me if I read The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. Mm-hmm. Um, saw the movies, talked about it a ton at school. Mm-hmm. The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe was written during World War II. Right. So a lot of the references, and I so you read it through. The, so you could... You could say the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe wasn't written to us, but it's for us. Mm-hmm. Take any bit of literature, and you could say the same thing. And I think that's the same thing with the Bible, because what happens is we jump to the Bible being written to us, mm-hmm. but there are actual people that right. the Bible is written to. And if you don't understand who it's written to, you're going to make some jumps that you're going to miss. Right. Context, right? Mm-hmm. Context. Um, ooh, that's good. And it doesn't mean that it, it's not for us, but if we miss the context, then we will we will misinterpret it. Okay, I, I get that. I understand that. Well, but that's why it's different to and for, um, for grammatically. Like, if it was written directly to us, um, you just told me about an episode you're doing about Justin Bieber. Maybe Justin Bieber gets mentioned in the Bible. Right. You know, maybe we talk about technology. Right. But it wasn't written to us, right. but it is for us. Mm. Peter. Peter, radio professional. Here I don't you. know about that, but come on, man. Bieber uh, fever. <laughs> Dude, you mentioned uh, a few questions we should ask when we when we read the Bible. Do you remember what they are off the top of your head? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, so walk so us through this. I, I just want to thank uh, Dr. Dave Dippold from... Uh, Dip, dippled? Dippled. Um, he actually, he pastored in Buffalo for a while, so, okay. but he was my Go professor. Bills. Go Bills. He yeah. was my professor down at Valley Forge. And um, so the three questions you ask, and they have to be in this order. What did the passage mean to the original hearers? Mm-hmm. What does this passage always mean? What are the timeless ideas? And then what does the passage mean for us today? And I feel like you have to go through that order and especially question number one. And that's kind of been the theme of what we've been talking about mm-hmm. is the Bible was written to a group of ancient individuals that had different ways of thinking. They thought about art differently. So one of the examples, and again, I, I don't want to freak your list, the listeners out. No, they're, they're tough. So, so like, evangelicals talk about taking the Bible literally. Mm -hmm. All right. There's evangelicals that love the book of Ecclesiastes. Mm -hmm. Dr. Jerome Douglas. I love Mm you. So he's my professor. He wrote a whole book on it's, it starts off by saying Coaleth, who's that also means teacher Mm -hmm. Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes. He loves the Bible. He believes in the authority. He doesn't believe Solomon wrote it. 
he believes that it was actually a pseudonym, kind of like O. Henry, mm-hmm. that someone else wrote it. And so if we don't ask that first question, you know, you know, uh, who's it written for, you know, or, you know, how did the original audience hear this? Mm-hmm. We're all of a sudden having this debate. Well, did Solomon really write it? Mm-hmm. Now, when you read the text, it, it I want to be careful as I say, it really doesn't matter. Right. Because it's, it's wisdom literature. Right. You know, it's, it's these proverbs, it's these ideas. And if you don't understand the, the ancients aren't sitting there like, well, did Solomon write this or not? Right. They're sitting there and they're, they're trying to contextualize for their own life. So you miss all of that. Mm-hmm. And then it's even easier with the epistles, which those are probably the most 21st century because you can kind of pick up what was happening in these house churches. So, Mm -hmm. you know, for example, I'm reading Titus right now. Mm -hmm. Titus starts off with, you know, you know, the God that never lies. And you can read this in the text because, you know, Paul quotes a philosopher that Cretans who it's written to Mm -hmm. are liars, cheaters, and drunk. Like they're saying all that. And so now as you read the book, it changes the way... And that's like super specific, but with narrative, with some of the poetry, with some of the Psalms, that's a little harder to see, but you're making this huge jump that the original audience was sitting there like, this is a great piece of literature right here. Mm-hmm. Mm. Mm, that's, that's illuminating. Um, okay. So how, how do you, oh, this is so tough though, because how do you, what does it mean to us today? I mean, how do you how do you dis- determine that? Like, how do you decipher? Uh, well, this was a you know this is a law. Like, this is just a natural law. Like, we should not do this thing ever, right? Like one of the Ten Commandments. And then there are other cultural things, like you know, that th- there's a controversy about like women wearing head coverings in church, right? And like that whole controversy. So how do you? Are we just? I'm, my biggest fear is like we're just picking and choosing what laws to obey and what not to obey. There's the old covenant. There's the new covenant. We can eat bacon now. Like how do you, how do you wade through that stuff? I'm sorry. That's, that's not, that's like a super open-ended question, but. Well, but, but that's the whole point of starting with that first question, Mm -hmm. you know, so let's, let's go to the head covering thing. Right. All right. You can safely assume without even going to a commentary. And here's the deal. Christianity is a big tent. Mm-hmm. You know, so we use this word orthodoxy, which means kind of these shared beliefs. You know, basically it's the authority of scripture, Jesus Christ's divinity, the Trinity, mm-hmm. um, Jesus's death and resurrection. Like if you take one of those out. Core, core beliefs, pillars. You, exactly. You take one of those out, Christianity falls apart. Mm-hmm. But you look at the women with head covering. I wonder if we sat down with Paul and Paul would sit there and say, like, I just told these women to put their head covering on because this is the culture that it's at. Right. You know, um, you know, I wonder if you read that passage in a place where women wear head coverings as a normal part of life. Mm-hmm. We don't do that in America. Mm-hmm. But like if it would just make sense and that's kind of the problem that we get into with the Bible, because when you jump to that third question, you miss it. And the Bible has Mm. a way more dynamic view. And here's the deal too. So in some churches they have bishops or presbyters, 
the advice that I would give a church in Springville, mm-hmm. New York, is very different than the advice I'd give to churches in Los Angeles. Mm. And, like, we forget that. Yeah. So, like, even the epistles, there there's a realm of discussion based on the needs of the church. And so we take what Paul wrote to a church, and we all of a sudden say, well, that's that's gospel gold right there. Right. And that's the hard part. You're right. It That's not... I can't just say literally do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sounding like Parks and Rec. Literally. Literally. Chris Krager. Yeah. Chris Krager. So, so that's why I think we have to be careful. And that's why even reading it as literature takes, it takes the pressure off of us. Mm-hmm. It takes this of how can I read this and see this from a first century person? Mm. All right, Peter. With that, with that foundation laid... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to embark on a little uh, overview of the text. And I imagine, I want you to interrupt me and jump in here if you, know, if you have like specific passages come to mind or something. But I was preparing for this and I was thinking like, the Bible is literature, which is an actual book I had to read in college. I didn't go to like a Bible college. Um, it wasn't a Christian school. But I took a class called, oh, the Bible is literature. And we had to read a book called the Bible's literature and I despised the book because I was like kind of young in my faith and learning like the doctrine and kind of being spiritually formed, um, by people like John Amayo, you know, who's your, our dear friend. Um, but this was not like an Orthodox book. It, it pretty much was like, yeah, the Bible's a nice story. Um, a lot of it is just wrong and not, it's not objective truth. Let's not look at it that way. You know, God's probably not real. And, and so that's the text that we had to read. And so this, I, when I think about the Bible as literature, I actually get like a, a sick feeling in my stomach because I had a bad experience in that class. And that was really confusing for me as a young Christian. But as I go ahead, well, you know, I, I sent you an article, yeah. um, I'm forgetting the name. I, I don't want to pull it up on my phone. But what I love what the author of that article said was, and he's a professor from Southeastern Baptist Theological, mm-hmm. that's a conservative, right. and he's like, so an acronym for the Bible is Basic Instructions Before Leaving Earth. Mm-hmm. Um, cheesy as that sounds. Right. So I think what he would say, and what I would say, the Bible isn't only informational. Yes. The Bible isn't only literature the bible isn't only poetry mm-hmm. so yeah yeah it's a con- right it's 66 books written by many different people over many different years mm. many different cultural contexts so what i thought what what is the bible's literature as i think about it now as a high school english teacher who you know has has a room full of kids that uh i'm trying to convince them to like say see read a story and say oh i see why this is beautiful like this is actually enjoyable i'm enjoying this and they don't want to right so most of them so i have to really work at it and so i'll write down all these literary elements on the board so uh like in my my whiteboard in my classroom so i got the plot you got the point of view right first person second person third person characterization uh, you've got imagery and metaphor and foreshadow and irony and all these things that storytellers use to craft a really compelling, impactful, engaging story, right, that leaves an impression on you. <clears throat> so what I want to do right now is just kind of run through some some sketchy thoughts I had and um, some <laughs> sketchy as in, like, they're not, hopefully not heretical, sketchy as in, like, I just sketched them out, you know, this morning. But uh, 
let me let me run some of these by you. And he, here would be here's my case, and I would not be able to do this in a public school, right? But here would be here's my case that the Bible is an incredible story, far beyond any story that's ever been written. First, you've got the plot, right? So what what's the action that happens in the story? Is it like well structured and engaging? And you've got uh, the creation, the fall, redemption, and consummation, right? So. Yeah, creation, Adam and Eve, and everything's great. And then the fall, right? Sin enters the world. And that's a really long uh, chapter in human history, right? And then Christ comes, and there's redemption, and there's this new covenant. And we're in this, that's, that's the phase we're in now, right? This already but not yet kind of phase where we have Christ, but we don't really have him. And we've been redeemed, but not fully restored, right? And so... The end that is to come, you know, spelled out in Revelation is consummation. And I, I love that word. We don't really talk about, uh, we don't really dive deep in that word, but um, I, I already, I know what it means, but I Googled it just for fun. And it's, <laughs> I, I, I Googled the definition of it, right? And it's, uh, you know, this, this sexual intercourse that takes place to cement a marriage bond, right? And to, we don't like thinking about, you know, when Jesus comes back for his bride, but all that language, all that implication that, like, the, the, the union of, of Christ with his bride is uh, something akin to, to um, sex and unity. And I think that's, we don't like to talk about it. I think it's beautiful. Um, but that's a plot. That's like a four four kind of sections of a plot that is coherent and incredible. Do you want me to make it even more basic? Yeah, go ahead. So the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi looks towards Jesus. Mm -hmm. The New Testament from Matthew to Revelation looks back to Jesus. Oh, look at that! So, so I, I didn't I didn't make that up. Right. Um, if you're really interested about the Bible's plot, one of my favorite classes was by Dr. Dwight Sheets mm -hmm. um, at Valley Forge, and we it's called Biblical Theology. It's literally the study of you know the story of the Bible, and there's a great book. It's called According to Plan by Graham's Goldsworthy that you should be able to find. There, there's certain threads that you can find throughout the Bible. Mm -hmm. The Bible starts with a garden in Genesis, mm -hmm. ends with a garden in Revelation. Mm -hmm. All last I checked. Jesus was in a garden. So, so these are Dude. the literary things that make the Bible come alive. It's parallelism. The, sy yeah. the symmetry of that is not accidental. It's, oh, it's so good. I never thought of that. Especially the, the Gethsemane garden. That's good. Um, okay, next, you've got point of view, right? So I teach my students like, hey, authors that are really great at telling stories are very intentional and strategic about their point of view decision, right? So if you, if you choose to tell a story from like first person, you're really going to be able to develop the character that's speaking through you, th that you're speaking through, right? So that's the protagonist that you really want the reader to know. Uh, but if you've got like a third person omniscient, right, where it's just the narrator is this unnamed person that's speaking and telling the story, they can, they know what everyone's thinking and, you know, depending on the kind of story you want to tell, a great point of view decision, will it really enrich the story, right? So that's kind of how I introduce that. And then you think about point of view of scripture, and it's mind-bogglingly complex in a great way. But you think about, uh, you've got the Holy Spirit that carried along all these writers so that it is the word of God. But, and correct me if I'm wrong, but God intentionally uses people and personality, individual unique personalities of authors come through. And so like a, Peter's texts are different than Paul's text. And you know that they're different people, even though it's the word of God. Um, it, 
the 66 books over the, over the course of so many years in different cultures is just like a really interesting decision. Like to God, God could have just like spoken all of this. Like sometimes he does in scripture, he will come in and literally just start speaking. Like when he, you know, uh, talks to Job and it's just literally God speaking and telling, telling the story for that moment. But so much the other stuff is other people speaking on God's behalf. And I don't know, that's just, well, so, so that's, that's a catch 22. Um, so, you know, if you study the gospels, um, you will see in a commentary, if you go deeper into it, um, they'll say tradition says that Matthew wrote the book, but in the text, it doesn't necessarily clearly state that because even the gospel writers said, I don't want my name put to this because the message is so important. Mm -hmm. But you think of something like Psalms, you know, there's a portion of Psalms that says David wrote this running from Saul. Yeah. And, and that's why like, so when we hear Bible study, like we think scientific inductive, like soul crushing, you know, but when you get the backstory, you know, that, and and you get the point of view with it, um, that's super powerful. You know, it's super powerful to look at the gospel of John who calls himself the beloved disciple. Mm-hmm. Um, bold move, John. Bold move, bold move. There you go. Bold but, guy. but no, yeah, I, I like it. And that's why like when you, if I was to hand you a commentary, you know, they'll talk about the reason why the book was written, um, you know, the original potential date, and then they'll talk about the potential author. Mm-hmm. And I think people get disoriented because it's like, you know, again, I go back to Ecclesiastes. Wait, the, the text says Solomon wrote it. Mm-hmm. And, and again, I think it's important for us to have that discussion. There's Bible-loving, Jesus-loving people that believe both ways right, on that. Right. But that perspective helps you. Right. So... Mm. It's it's yeah. It's a good text, but not a safe text, which you would understand if you had read line. With I know that Aslan. You know the line. You know you saw the movie. Had a boy. Okay, next you've got characterization, which is something I, I talk to kids about. So characterization, this process of crafting and developing and revealing what a character is like in a story over the course of the text. And you think about characterization. You think about God as a character in a story, which he is. It's not fiction, right? God is real. And, but if you did think about him as a character in a story, he's incredibly complex and rich. And to me, that's a marker of a good character, someone that's complex. We talk about three-dimensional characters versus one-dimensional. One-dimensional is like someone that you wouldn't want to talk to for more than five minutes because you would be bored to death. But a, a three-dimensional character has uh, a lot of texture, right? There's a lot to get to know. They're mysterious. They're interesting. There's a lot... It's a rich, it's a rich person, and you could talk to them for ten hours without even realizing the time's mm-hmm. gone by, right? And so I think of a, a passage like Genesis six six. Uh, the Lord regretted that He had made human beings on the earth, and His heart was deeply troubled. All right, so young Cody reads that and says, "Wait, how could the Lord regret?" This is a contradiction to other scripture that says He is sovereign and makes no mistakes and is in total control all the time, right? Um, and I. I I read that and I panic. And then I remember, uh, I think it's probably my boy, Jay Pipes, um, Johnny Piper, who, who kind of addressed this question and kind of gave me a little comfort in a time of severe doubt. But he said something to the effect of like, hey, what if God has the emotional complexity to um, lament something 
but also um, understand that it's it wasn't an accident that he did it on purpose, but mm-hmm. it still pains him. And it's part of this like complex inner life that is hard for small-minded humans to grasp. Um, he, it was so much more eloquent than that. But to think about God as a complex character, I think, um, enriches our reading of the Bible. So you know, my friend Austin teaches at Brockport, and he teaches the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I got to sit in one of his classes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think one of the biggest mistakes you can make is, like, take a Bible character like David and be mm-hmm. like, I want to be like David. Right. And because we come and we're like, David fought Goliath, he's a man after God's own heart. But in this specific class, these students were talking about, so David goes to, uh, David's running from Saul, I think. If I mess up the details, the the theologian correctors will be there. But yeah, they'll be there. So he's running and he needs needs something to eat. Mm -hmm. So he eats the bread. Right from, you know, the, the tabernacle he eats right. the bread and that he wasn't supposed to, they wasn't supposed to. Right. And these students are reading this and we sit there and we're like, well, David's David. He can just eat right. whatever he wants. Right. And they're sitting there and they're like, David's got mixed motives. And I think that sometimes what we do is we take characters of the Bible and we're like, be like David, mm-hmm. be a murderer and an adulterer. Right. But you know, there there's based even on what you just said, there's a simple rule that God is the hero of every story. And, and, and here's the bottom line, you know, the Bible does not resolve human free will and God's sovereignty. It's almost like a bicycle pedals. They work together. And, and, and it's hard to explain that because yeah, God is all knowing, right. But God works with humans. Yeah. Prayers matter and prayers matter, but like how much more powerful does that make God that he doesn't need to control every detail? I find it, I find it so hilarious because people will come to me and you know, I have a friend and uh, she was just reaching out. She had a couple questions and she's like, you know, why, you know, why didn't everything completely change when Jesus died on the cross? Um, and so first of all, it did, mm-hmm. but secondly, like I can't force my daughters to love me back. Right. I can't like, and even that's part of like, if you want to go to literature, that's part of Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. There's a level of free will and freedom that characters in a story need to, like, it can't just be, all right, you know, Jesus night, like there's a dynamicness to it. Mm-hmm. And I think that we miss that. Mm. That's so good, dude. I was going to bring up David, but you already did. And it's <laughs> more valuable than what I was going to say about him. So let me jump to imagery real quick. Cause so imagery, this, uh, you, you hear the word image and you probably think visual, but, um, at least ha- how I use it, sensory imagery in, in my world is any kind of a vivid description that appeals to one of the five senses, which I'm convinced that nobody can list the five senses without stumbling. Peter go five senses, go. Seeing, smelling, hearing, tasting. Um, seeing, smelling, hearing, tasting. Man, what did I miss? Touch. Touch. See, my, my, my hypothesis still stands. I can never do it. And I talk about this all the time in class. And every time I list them, I'm like, uh, okay. Or like I'll say um, hearing and sound. I'll list that one twice. Um, anyway. Uh, yeah, so sensory imagery, vivid description. I wanted to read a couple passages real quick. Um, 
And, and you tell me that the Bible is just like an instruction manual that's just designed to communicate objective facts about God. If that were the case, it would be much shorter. Like the, it, we would not need this many pages, right? But this is when, uh, when the Lord speaks to Job. So it's uh, Job 38, verse 16. I'll read to 30 real quick. Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the deepest darkness? Have you comprehended the vast expenses of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. What is the way to the abode of light, and where does darkness reside? Can you take them to their places? Do you know the paths to their dwellings? Surely you know, for you were already born. You have lived so many years. Such attitude in this. (laughs) Um, have, Have you entered the storehouses of the snow or seen the storehouses of the hail, which I reserve for times in trouble, for days of war and battle? What is the way to the place where the lightning is dispersed or the place where the east winds are scattered over the earth? Who cuts a channel for the torrents of rain and a path for the thunderstorm to water a land where no one lives, an uninhabited desert to satisfy a desolate wasteland and make it sprout with grass? Does the rain have a father? Who fathers the drops of dew? From whose womb comes the ice? Who gives birth to the frost from the heavens when the waters become hard as stone? when the surface of the deep is frozen. I mean, just chilling stuff. Like, that is, that is chilling prose and, and poetry from God, who is not at all trying to explain how hail is formed, right? But he's, he's trying to say, this is who I am. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Like, oh, he's yeah. humbling Job, right? And, I, like, what's, why does he go to such great lengths? And he goes on and on like that, and that's just devastating lines. Well, let me ask you this. What do you think is the most famous verse in the Bible? John 3.16. What does it say? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever should believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. I'm so proud of myself that I knew that on the spot. Because no, no. It, it, the mic is on and I could have froze up with that. But you could have forgotten that's, touch. That's at, least close. <laughs> that's at least close. So, so, so let me ask you, that when, when people bring up that passage, mm-hmm. what do they usually think about? Like, what do you usually think about? The gospel, um, like the sacrifice of a son, the cross. I mean, I mean, do you read it as a cold or warm verse? Warm, yeah. Okay. Tender, yeah. Okay. So go to John 3. Mm-hmm. That, that verse comes in the middle <laughs> of, of a discussion. And John 3, 1 through 2, it immediately, it says this. It says that Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. So if you're a modern reader, you know, sometimes a modern reader will sit there and say, oh, Nicodemus is coming at night, so he's not seen. Maybe, but as you read the book of John, whenever there's darkness, there's some type of fight or debate. So, you know, I I had the opportunity to talk to Mickey Clink, who's written a whole commentary on the Gospel of John. He's Mm -hmm. a pastor, but he used to be a professor. And and Mickey's sitting there and he's telling me, Peter, this is darkness. Like, this is a theme of, of John that whenever there's a figure in darkness, it's it's not just about hiding, it's about there's an actual fight and debate. And that warm, beautiful verse right. that we see at every sports event, right. like Jesus like wins the debate with Nicodemus. Mm-hmm. And what he doesn't do is he doesn't like throw down a gronk touchdown on him. Mm-hmm. He says that verse. Right. He says, 
I win this debate, but I love you. Mm. And this is all in the cover of darkness. Mm -hmm. So when we don't pick up on that imagery, Mm -hmm. when we don't have artists or authors or poets reading that, we just kind of jump to it. Well, well, here's the reason. Nicodemus is just coming at night because he's scared. Well, if you were to read all of John and you start asking, when is darkness brought up? Yeah. You know, darkness is referred to when Jesus dies on the cross. Right. Judgment. Yeah. You know, I mean, there there's some type of conflict or battle. And if you don't read it with a artistic literary lens, mm-hmm. you miss that. Mm. Right on, bro. Um, another thing I talk about with kids is figurative language, right? And metaphor. I th- you think about the most famous psalm, which is what, Peter? The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I feel like this is some like awkward Bible quiz. Like well, Sunday you, school you started sort of, it, bro. You started yeah. it, so I'm gonna. <laughs> well, I did. I just want to make sure we're all on the same page. Here, you know? That's all. <laughs> um, no, dude. But the 23rd Psalm, you know, the Lord is my shepherd. This metaphor of Jesus, and there's so many that you know God is compared to so many different things as to help us understand like how He relates to us. But the shepherd one is so rich, like. Um, I read that psalm and it's famous and popular. I've heard it even since I was a kid before being in church. And, um, you know, the Lord is my shepherd. I'm his sheep. Uh, That's all throughout scripture. But I read this book by Philip Keller uh, called A A Shepherd Takes a Look at Psalm 23 or something like that. And uh, it just, you know, almost every chapter is a verse that he's breaking down. And he's just explaining like, you know, you anoint my head with oil. And he's like, well... You know, shepherds put oil on their sheep's faces to keep bugs and pests from like from like bothering them, right? To keep them off their face and from being pestered. And he he goes through each one and says, "This is like uh, someone that someone wrote this knew like what it meant to be a shepherd." And uh, that the metaphor of that just is just from a literary sense is just objectively beautiful and like that's really effective use of language and storytelling and characterization. Um, but there's a lot more metaphor in the Bible than just that. Yeah, and, and, and that that's kind of the struggle. Like, you know, we see, you know, um, you know, Proverbs does this a ton. Like, you know, kind words are like a honeycomb. Yeah. Or, and I'm yeah. probably misquoting. But, like, guard your heart for it's the wellspring of your life. Right. You know, and these pictures meant something yeah. to the original audiences. Right. Um, here, here's one. Um May the peace of God umpire rule your life. Um, that's in Colossians. Mm-hmm. So we thought we talk about peace being almost passive, right? And but the peace that the Bible talks about is wholeness. And like you wouldn't put peace and umpiring right. in the same sentence, but we all know, like my wife's one of her favorite words is boundaries, mm-hmm. like. In order to have peace, sometimes you actually have to put up boundaries and you have to work at it and you have to work through conflict because ignoring it is not peaceful on the contrary. And so you see a beautiful, and you just take what the original hearers heard and then you apply, it just, it enlivens you even more. Yeah. Mm. And that's, it's a, it's a rich text. It's a rich text. That's what rich texts do. I've got two more, two more elements here. Foreshadow. All right, this hint of things to come, right? And we get, you know, we get prophecy, which is, I think, even stronger than a foreshadow. It's not so much a hint. It's God saying, this will happen. I've made a promise. Like, this is going to happen, right? Um, But my favorite foreshadow in all of the Bible is Isaiah 53. Um, It's among the most 
beautiful and blatant foreshadows of like the Messiah to come. Um, it's specific and uh, it's way before Christ comes. It was like 700 years roughly. I don't know. That's a guess. <laughs> Correct me if I'm wrong, but um, foreshadow. That's just the, the buildup of anticipation, the people crying out for a king and God saying he's coming. Um, and, and we're still in that today. Yeah. Well, man, you went all positive. I'm going to go all negative. Go, go. But let, let's go back to David. Mm-hmm. When kings would go to war, David was at home. Mm. That, that foreshadowing right there is right before he has an affair with Bathsheba and he murders her husband, Uriah. And, and the thing about that is, if you read that like an original hearer, and you try to figure out, you go to a Bible dictionary, you go to a commentary, you, you go to those things and you try to understand that, you begin to see yourself in that. Mm-hmm. Not you want to be David, right. but you know what are the, the places and things I'm supposed to be doing mm-hmm. that maybe I'm idle in my life? Like you have to wrestle with that. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when I'm supposed to be at the office, right. but I'm at happy hour, right. you know, when I'm supposed to be home and I'm still working. Right. Like that is super a play. I mean, again, I'm just using it because it's from the text there. How many affairs have started because two workers stay late at the office? Just a little, just a tiny step, just a little foreshadow, just a little foreshadow. And, and again, what even you're talking about with Jesus, like sometimes Jesus like gives blatant foreshadow. Mm -hmm. He says, I am going to die. Right. And if you don't know (laughs) that from a literary perspective, you, you know, and, and even with the the disciples, like when you read the scripture, most of the time you can relate to the disciples. Right. And you can be gracious to them. So Jesus does that, but I mean, it's powerful. Yeah. Okay. That's good. The last one I have, and this is, I say this for last because I think it's the most satisfying. Um, when a story does this well, it's like Romeo, Romeo and Juliet, like uh, one thinks the other's dead, and so they kill himself, and the other, they're not actually dead, and we know this as the readers, but they don't know it, and it's this dramatic irony, right? So the irony here, um, knowing what we know about having, having all of Scripture and what the gospel is and what Christ accomplished on the cross, today we know this, and we can look back on a passage like uh, Luke 23, 35 through 37. Let me pull this up here. So Christ is being crucified, right? Um, he just says he's the, the two thieves on the cross he says, father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. And this, this is 35. The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself. If he is God's Messiah, the chosen one, the sol- the soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Right? So you've got these people who are mocking Jesus and saying, oh, why don't you save yourself? Get on down from there and save yourself. And the irony is, if Christ did get, come down from the cross, which he could have done, it, he could not save them, right? And so the irony there of, no, in fact, it looked like he was coming into Jerusalem as the victorious king and everyone was Hosanna, everyone was all riding with him. And then he doesn't, he, it looks like he's failing, right? The, the cross looks like the biggest failure for any kind of king. But of course, we know now, looking back, it's the victory. It is, no, in fact, I'm, I'm not only saving myself, I'm losing my life to save you, 
you know, you numbskulls. Like, you have no idea what I'm accomplishing up here. Even though nobody gets it, I get it. And the irony of that, of the cross, is so just dramatically executed. Like, it is a perfectly well-told, crafted story that makes me think, like, even if you're not a Christian and you don't buy this as objective fact, the story of the cross and what that, the theology of that and the implications of that historical moment are so beautiful, just from a purely objective, you could say it's all fake. You could believe Jesus never even existed. But the fact that someone in your mind fabricated that story, that whoever fabricated that story, it makes Shakespeare look like a kindergartner writing a short story. You know what I mean? Like it is so rich and beautiful and it's almost evidence that, you know, un- unbelievers are, are blind. They've got st- scales on their eyes that, and well, well, we, we have scales on our eyes, yeah, but right. let me, let me take that story okay. one step further. Okay. So the next chapter, Luke 24, Mary and a group of women go to try to bring spices for Jesus mm-hmm. in his body. The tomb's empty. Mary cries. And she begins to talk to someone that she thinks is the gardener. Mm -hmm. And it ends up being Jesus. So the writer of Luke intentionally, intentionally points back to Genesis. Mm -hmm. Mm. She thought Jesus was the gardener. I never caught that, dude. You know, and I mean... There's all of these little ties there. Yeah. And and when she says Mary, you know, and again, we're, you know, we're seeing, and, and even in Luke 24, you know, Jesus is with a group of disciples. You want to talk about irony. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're lamenting, they're grieving the fact that Jesus is dead. Mm-hmm. And the whole time Jesus is with them and he explains, mm-hmm. he explains the whole gospel. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you think about the power of that. That that's, mm-hmm. I mean, if you don't see that, and you don't see that as li- like that's so powerful, and ends up being practical, and ends up speaking to kind of the scientific, not necessarily like just the more logical way of thinking, but but the biblical writers wrote with a certain degree of literary style. Absolutely, dude. Oh, there's so much more as you're talking. I'm thinking about Isaac and sacrifice and all the foreshadow of that. And there's so much more. I mean, we this could be like a whole podcast in itself. But. Well, well, do yourself a favor. Mm-hmm. I read my daughter almost every night from the Jesus Storybook Bible. Mm-hmm. You know, and Sally Lloyd-Jones. Sally. She brilliantly points all those stories back to Jesus. Mm. You know, and for the Isaac one, she'll say, one day... God would send his own son to be the sacrifice. And actually yeah, and, give him up. Yeah, and, and so we read Isaac and Abraham and like, we're like sick. This we're is... like deeply offended. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you don't what were the original hearers I mean, what were they noticing about that passage? Yeah. I'm not saying it's a crazy passage. It's weird. Right. Like the Genesis six passage it's weird, mm-hmm. but if you don't have an ancient lens on to understand like the literature, the context, then you're making these jumps and assumptions without actually knowing. Ah, uh, Peter. Bro, I'm so thankful um, for your insight in this. This is, I haven't thought about the Bible like this um, in this way, I don't think ever. So, except I, for that class you hated at college. Wow, well, that's, <laughs> that, just, that just hardened me. That just, 
hardened my heart a little bit, but um, dude, so good. Uh, we we could go on and on, but uh, let's let's wrap it up, Peter. How would uh, a deeper understanding of the Bible as art change our relationship with Christ? Take us home, Peter. Take sure. us home, Uncle Pete. So, <laughs> so I don't know if people know that I'm named after both my parents' twins. I did not know that. So um, my mom's twin is Peter. So that's where Uncle Pete comes from. Uncle so there Pete, you go. there you go, Uncle Pete Pachano. Um, so I, I think it's 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 two things. Reading as literature, um, number one, the Bible comes alive. Mm-hmm. Like we're doing an audio podcast. When I said to you. When Mary thought Jesus was a gardener, your mm-hmm. eyes just yeah. lit up they because did. there's there's connections there that we miss. But then number two, you were never supposed to read the Bible alone. Mm-hmm. So that's why churches have small groups. That's why like you should read the Bible in community. I want to be super practical and mm-hmm. super timely. We're having all these discussions about racism. Mm-hmm. We're having all these discussions about prejudice and and we we should have had them a long time ago, and we should have taken action. But when I read a passage like Ephesians 2, where Paul talks about breaking down the walls of Gentiles and Jews, and Jews were, you know, I think it's safe to say they, they felt like they were superior. They felt like they were God's elect. Mm-hmm. And when Paul makes a statement breaking down the walls, yeah, I read this as a white male, I'm sitting there and I'm like, yeah, that's wrong. The Gentiles mm-hmm. don't, they should belong mm-hmm. and the Jews are treated horribly. But if I read that with empathy and with a friend, mm-hmm. with my black brothers and sisters, when I read that with my Asian brothers and sisters, it comes and, to life a little and, bit. And they say, I've been a Gentile. Mm-hmm. I feel like a Gentile sometimes. Mm-hmm. I mean, imagine having those conversations before, you know, imagine even looking at yourself like, am I a Jew at times Mm -hmm. that it's, you only belong if you do things a certain way. You know, I think even the last thing I'd take you home with is just reading the Bible differently. Mm -hmm. You know, so I just got a series of books, they're biblica, um, they're four volumes, they're big books, they're the Bible without verses. Mm -hmm. So I'm reading this. I don't know where to stop right, like, right because right. there's no verse and chapter right and even that like some that's where we lean too scientifically when mm-hmm. we read the i love science okay mm-hmm. i just i don't want to be too controversial yeah, I, got, I got my vaccine i just want to sure. throw that out there okay <laughs> but when you read the bible scientifically that's not the way it was meant to only be read only right so so when you read it with an artistic flavor, when you read it with a literary flavor, there's something that happens in you that when you take the verse numbers off and you're just right. reading it, probably the best thing that you can do, take a book like Philippians, take a book like Ecclesiastes, read it cover to cover. Like a letter. Just like a letter. Yeah. Because there's things that you begin to pick up. Yes. Yeah. The head, the head versus the heart, you know, and then both of those together, I think is how we're supposed to enjoy this text. And it's, it's not merely a practical text, right? Why do you stop and stare at a beautiful sunset? Is it for the, the vitamins, you know, that you're going to get? That's probably not what you're thinking about. You're just like, wow, that's beautiful. I really enjoy this. This is pleasurable. And I think that's what we're supposed to see when we, when we see Christ in Scripture. And we have the audacity to believe right. that when you read the Bible, the Holy Spirit can speak to you. 
we have the audacity to believe that when you read the Bible, you can encounter Jesus. That's the, that's the word right there, bro. That's where we're going to end. <laughs> Peter, dude, thank you so much for being on the show. Forefront is uh, sincerely grateful, man. I'm glad we could finally do this. How can uh, people connect with you online? Uh, two ways. Go to whygotwhypodcast.com. Um, love for you to subscribe. Check that out. You can even, um, Forefront probably should even share your episodes so that way people know that you're out and God, about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and on. then, you know, I'm sure you'll be tagging me. I'm, I'm on everything. I'm even on Clubhouse. I don't know what I'm Club, doing. I don't even know what that is, Peter. Oh, you don't know what Clubhouse? Look at you, we'll, bro. We'll, we'll save that. Okay. But um, you can find me on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook. Um, Instagram. Po- Instagram post yeah. there. But yeah, I'm sure Forefront will tag me and you can find me there. Oh, I forgot. I'm at PeterEngler.com. So mm-hmm. that sounds so pretentious. But No, it's, you are. It's a, you are there. P- PeterEngler.com. I can attest as a friend, uh, Peter's a good follow on uh, on social media. He's always giving even a little, some little sports junkies. If you get any kind of sports stuff in there, you might get a little... Uh, you always ask controversial questions. You recently asked about ranch, and I... Uh, we won't get into that, but it's... It's I'll me. just I'll just say ranch is the most overrated condiment. Yeah, he likes to cause division in among the church. So I, I'm just speaking the truth in love. Okay. That's all I'm doing. Okay, dude. Um, again, thank you, man. Uh, friends, thanks as always for listening to the show. Uh, if you're not driving a vehicle right now, leave us a little rate and review, or pull over and, and leave a rate and review. It's that important. All right. Uh, until next time, keep pursuing authentic faith and excellent art.